Last time, I promised I would tell you about rabbit holes. These days, that phrase suggests a blurry late night spent basking in the glow of your phone, mindlessly scrolling through all sorts of nonsense. Was Princess Diana's death a hit? Did MKUltra inspire the Manson murders? You might be able to grab a bit of usable info here or there. Maybe a little factoid or detail you tuck away to make you look like a sparkling conversationalist later. You've learned something. But it's more likely that you come out foggier on the other end, take a guilty look at the clock, and wonder how you ended up where you did. What were you looking for in the first place? I don't think that's the kind of rabbit hole that Lewis Carroll meant to capture in his classic Alice's Adventures in Wonderland. The book, of course, suggests a psychedelic trip, complete with that infamous hookah-smoking caterpillar and magic food and drink that makes Alice's body betray her. Alice follows the waistcoated little guy into his burrow and falls through the center of the universe. Her absurd, confounding, and often terrifying experience renders her a different girl on the other side. But rather than leaving her worse for the wear, Alice's trip means she understands the world a little bit better. Because Alice is growing up. I think about that a lot when I'm up late, determined to pound the facts I have into submission, to render some sense out of them that would stand up in a court of law. We can theorize all we want and let our brains wander into strange real estate, but if we're going to find Doreen, we need to keep a clear head. If we're going to go down any rabbit holes, and I've learned we should do so with extreme caution, we need to locate the usable information, grasp hold, and get back to the surface, ASAP. I have a hard time doing that, especially as I dive deeper and deeper into this case. Somehow, I need to remain anchored to the real world. I need to check my work and swallow my pride. I need to attempt a truce with the Wallingford Police Department. Since Sarah Dimio and I started looking for Doreen in the fall of 2018, I've had to learn a lot of names. Anthony DeMeo, Jim Cifarelli, Stephen Jakes, Mike Ferenza, and William Wright. But it was Michael Colavolpe the head of Wallingford's detective division, who remained elusive. I had never heard the guy speak, much less know what he looked like, till he testified at my second FOIA hearing in February 2020. After I lost my case that July, I've made it a point to call or email Mike every few weeks or so with a couple of questions or theories based on new stuff I've turned up. Mike was always polite and helpful a bright spot in my experience with the WPD. The department agreed, promoting Mike to captain this past April 20th. Presiding over the ceremony honoring Colavolpe and four other officers, Chief Wright said he was proud of their college credentials and test scores. These are smart people capable of making good decisions, he said. Two weeks earlier, on April 6th, Chief Wright had himself announced that he would retire from the department on July 1st to head safety operations for Choate Rosemary Hall, local boarding school, and my alma mater. Wright told the Record Journal's Lauren Tacoris 
that he wouldn't trade his time in Wallingford for anything. I wasn't looking to retire. I wanted to continue to work, he said. I truly enjoy my job here, but this opportunity presented itself. It's a very unique position, which I believe fits my skill set. Asked to reflect on his legacy, he said, There's been a lot of work done there to bring greater accountability and transparency to law enforcement. Wallingford is a community that expects a lot from its police department. I think what remains consistent is the values that our town demands from our operation. I think if you were to ask our community members how they feel we function, I'm confident that they, by and large, would say we do a good job. But we also recognize that we're always continuing and striving to do better. I think that's fair to say. We're not perfect, but certainly hardworking. Mayor Bill Dickinson attended the ceremony, too, telling Tacoris he felt right was, quote, one of those rare individuals who takes his work very seriously, but has an understanding and a compassion with regard to all citizens. Certainly I am, and I'm sure many are, very sorry to have him retire but he leaves a great history of good judgment, captaincy, and a great example for all of the members of the police department. Mayor Dickinson himself is not ready to retire anytime soon, announcing his bid for a 20th consecutive term this past June 9th. Of course, there was a costume, one of the many things Bill is locally famous for. Most recently, he sparked protest for refusing to purchase air conditioning to alleviate the sweltering conditions at the Wallingford Animal Shelter. They can't speak, so we have to do it for them, one animal lover told the Record Journal. And that's not the only reason people are angry. When the appointment of a new animal control officer was delayed, Dickinson pulled Wallingford PD officers from their posts to tend to the cats and dogs. Meanwhile, records unearthed by those who had challenged Dickinson's seat in November indicate that the mayor has been less than truthful about his efforts to help the shelter in years past, despite its pleas. Despite or maybe because of his obvious popularity, Dickinson does things like this a lot, causing the town to light up in embarrassment over the unwanted attention the town receives. One of his most infamous moves made well before he was lighting local Facebook groups up with indignation, constituted being the last mayor in Connecticut's 169 towns to recognize Martin Luther King Day until he was forced to in 2000. His refusal to grant town employees the holiday, unless they sacrificed another, caught the attention of the New York Times, which noted that when the issue reached fever pitch that year, Three men in Klan hoods strolled down North Main Street and were stopped by officers of the WPD. We wanted to see how people would react in town, said 20-year-old Harry Pender, who noted there were about 30 KKK members in Wallingford. Wallingford, Pender said, seems like the kind of town where we could get comfortable. Wallingford Lieutenant Thomas Curran let Pender and his buddies go, chalking the incident up to a prank. But that wasn't the end of it as far as Wallingford resident and state rep Mary Mushinsky was concerned. Introducing a bill that would require all Connecticut towns to honor MLK Day with a day off, Representative Mushinsky told the Times, quote, 
It's gotten way out of hand. The town's reputation is suffering. I know Dickinson's thinking of the budget, but there's really a bigger issue here. He's aiding and comforting bigots and kooks. The bigots and kooks are, unfortunately, well known to Wallingford and its neighboring town of Meriden. In 1981, as I was turning three, the KKK held a string of rallies in my hometown. Right over by Silver City Gun Shop, where Mark's wife Sharon bought him a gun the month after Doreen went missing, counter demonstrators at the town's St. Patrick's Day parade threw rocks, bricks, and cement chunks, injuring 20, including some police. They weren't doing nothing against the law, a Main Street furniture owner told the Times of the Klansmen. If they were, I think the state would protect us. Anyway, what was I talking about? Ah, yes, Mayor Dickinson and his costumes. For as long as I can remember, Dickinson has loved dressing up. A quick Google search yields disguises ranging from Gandalf to a toy soldier to Abraham Lincoln. But it's the election year costumes used each time to announce his candidacy that are really special. Favorites include a musketeer or a Roman centurion, but there's also been a colonist, a knight, and a Trojan soldier meant to warn against the Trojan horse presented by the Wallingford Democrats. This year, claiming he wanted to represent the work to be done, Dickinson chose a brown drill instructor-style hat, work apron, and work belt, decked out with hammer, pliers, and vice grips. Dealing with the day-to-day issues requires a lot of effort and full involvement in order to provide the services that the community needs, Dickinson said. You have to be a little bit Boy Scout, a little bit Smokey the Bear, and a little bit Marine Drill Sergeant. Mayor Dickinson also loves to sing, sometimes at town events with his band, Bill and Friends. He also does solo appearances, like the time he serenaded the 2015 graduates of Sheehan High. Let me think about, uh, what would Walk the Moon say about it? Well, let's find out. You're freshmen full of fright. Four years later, titans of mine. Maroon and gold, your diplomas tonight. We knew you were bound to be together, bound to be together. She and took your arm. We know just how it happened. You took the floor and she said, oh, don't you dare look back. Just keep your eyes on me. You said you're holding back. She said, shut up and dance with me this school opens destiny she said shut up and dance with me anyway Smokey the bear sometimes i think this podcast writes itself only you can prevent forest fires what were those ads like let me look that up this is what a forest fire looks like through an animal's eyes Please help prevent forest fires. Nope. Sorry, Jess. It's three in the morning, and that's not only a rabbit hole, it's a literal nightmare. Focus. Let's get back to Captain Colavolpe. After almost three years of being frozen out by the police department, it's been nice to feel like I have his ear and to receive reassurances, albeit vague, that the case is slowly proceeding along. It's been almost a year and a half since that February 2020 hearing, 
when he testified that he'd be applying shortly for an arrest warrant. When I pressed him on what shortly meant, hopefully within a year was the answer. Then COVID hit, and the investigation ran up against banks I can't tell you about just yet. Be patient. We're working on it, Cole Volpe told me every time he returned my calls. In the meantime, he said, there's a lot of misinformation out there. People need to stop spreading it. Do you mean me? I asked. Have I reported something that's not true? Because if that's the case, I immediately need to clear it up. And I told Colavolpe what I have told the Wallingford PD from the start, that the last thing I want to do is compromise any work done on Doreen's case, mine or theirs. Because all these years later, if we're not doing it right, what's the point? So I try to nail things down, catalog and finalize little pieces, little facts, so I can move on to more pressing items on my list. But for a file that only makes up two lonely boxes in the WPD's file room, the facts in Doreen's case do a weird thing. They twist and shapeshift and blur. In trying to nail them down, I often find myself tunneling back into that real estate I was talking about, that strange space that Doreen takes up in my brain. I could talk to Cola Volpe for hours about who she was and where her body might be. I could go on for days about how whatever befell her is most likely bound up with what horrible things were happening to her in the dark, things that people didn't like talking about. And the PD didn't want to talk about them either. Every time I broached the abuse I thought Doreen had suffered, they ignored, or joked, or sidestepped. So I pushed Colavolpe on it this past spring, and that's when he finally threw up his hands. We're not looking at molestation or rape, he told me. We're looking at murder. You're talking apples and oranges, he said and the statute of limitations on the former had long passed. Writing this, I'm still amazed I was able to pick my jaw up off the floor. They're two halves of the same apple, the same goddamn story, I insisted. If you're going to convince a judge to grant an arrest warrant, or a jury, that whoever killed Doreen is guilty as sin, you have to tell the whole story. It's the motive. I all but yelled into the phone. I took a deep breath and tried to compose myself, but then I noticed it seemed like Colavolpe was barely listening. I could hear him turning the pages of the file as he read to himself, and the next words out of his mouth almost knocked me off my feet. Anyway, he said, sexual abuse is irrelevant. Besides the underwear photos, there is no evidence of abuse like that in the file. Down, 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 Lewis Carroll wrote, describing Alice's plunge. Would the fall never come to an end? I'm Jessica Fritz Aguirre, and this is season two, episode four of Sticky Beak Little Alice. Walk, softly, children. Walk, softly, children. Walk, softly, children. Find Children, walk, walk, 
For almost three years now, I've been steadily heaping information outside the PD's door, trying to make sure I'm headed in the right direction and not wasting my time building a fantasy case that would fall apart in court. Certain things you'd think should be easy to nail down, like the night Mark was seen in Huntington State Park. When I first heard someone had seen a man remove something from his truck bed in the park's twilight, weeks or even months after Doreen had gone missing, I figured the witness himself would be easy enough to find. Everyone agreed that the truck, identified not only by its color and dents, but also by its tow hook and homemade toolbox, was Mark's. But the identity of the witness himself remained a complete mystery as I poured through stacks of records and old record journal articles supplied to me by Lauren Tacoris. One day I sat staring at the piles with a friend, trying to will new information into existence and wishing that beating one's head against a hard surface would actually be of some help. Suddenly, my friend noticed something on one of those photocopied pages, a little copyright symbol bearing the year 2001 under a photo of Doreen and some audio tapes of witness interviews that I would kill to get my hands on. Had something been written in 2001? Was I missing an article? I called Lauren. Oh, yeah, she told me. The Jason Berry article. That one's digital. We only gave you the microfiche ones. Did you want the digital articles too? Yes, I replied, and this time it was my phone. I resisted slamming against a hard surface. Finally, arms with Barry's story and Paul O'Connell's name, the additional details only added to my confusion and frustration. For some reason, he was fixated on the truck. Then Detective Tom Hanley told the paper. Even though O'Connell thought he'd seen a guy carrying what might have been a body, he didn't follow the stranger into the woods. He didn't have any idea where the guy went. It was dark, Hanley told Barry. I don't think he even had a radio. Instead, O'Connell stayed behind to painstakingly document the truck's every detail. The truck was so memorable that he remembered it like he'd seen it yesterday, a year later, in the summer of 1989. That was when private investigator Kingsley found him on a hunch at the park's old stone barn and asked if he'd seen anything weird. Kingsley passed the information off to Hanley and Fliss, who went out to the barn armed with a word processor to take O'Connell's statement. These days, O'Connell denies Hanley's 2001 memory of the story, telling me he never saw anything like a carpet or a kid in Mark's arms. It was just a guy dumping garbage, or so I thought, he told me. But if it's just a guy dumping garbage, I think, why were you so fixated on the truck? And that's not the only question I'm left with. In his conversations with me, Paul O'Connell is detailed and open and friendly, but he's only willing to divulge certain facets of the story in the absence of his statement and an okay to speak from Wallingford. That statement has never seen the light of day, and police have always refused to let O'Connell speak, to me now and to Barry in 2001. I get it. In an open investigation, you have to keep some stuff under wraps. But these days, what O'Connell saw, and the fact that his account had been relayed to the public at all, seems a bit of a sore spot for the cops. In February 2019, when Sarah Demio and I first met with Lieutenant Anthony DeMeo, he got visibly flustered 
when I began reading Barry's reporting of Hanley's account of O'Connell's story off my phone. DeMeo jumped out of his seat and came to read the article over my shoulder, his agitation only growing when the story came from Hanley, who left Wallingford in 1991. He was just talking to reporters, DeMeo muttered, almost to himself. If steam could have come out of his ears, it would have. And as for Captain Colavolpe, recently he told me he'd always been suspicious of O'Connell's account. Why stay and fixate on the truck, he asked. If the ranger had really thought the man was carrying a body, why didn't he follow him into the woods? And so here we are back at those silly little stones. Little Rock spelling out DV for Doreen Vincent, that either existed or did not, but which continued to bedevil me. Ranger O'Connell denied there had been initials, but told me I was hot. I never heard anything about initials. Okay. Are stones spelling out anything else? Yeah, I won't go into detail, but, uh, you know, you're, you're, uh, if I would say you're hot. Okay. I never heard anything about uh, initials, though. Let's just leave it at that. Refusing to provide more detail without PD approval or a look at his statement, O'Connell was curious as to where I had gotten that information. Secondhand from Hanley, I told him, although I would keep my primary source confidential. For a while, I assumed Hanley had the better take on this particular part of the story. After all, he'd been the one on the ground in 1989, when the search for Doreen finally got underway. But why did his story, after all, initials are initials, differ so pointedly from O'Connell's? I assumed I was hearing about Hanley's first-hand observations in the forest, but upon further reflection, I realized he had used the passive voice, Rocks had been seen, while not clarifying who had done the seeing. But Michael Colavolpe and now Mike Forenza have both assured me there is nothing about a grave marker or memorial in the file. There would have been photographs, Colavolpe told me. Hard pictures. Do you mean Polaroids, I asked him, and we shared an unexpected and bittersweet laugh over the fact that 1988 was a million light years away. Here's another entry on my list that refuses to provide easy answers. Something the cops found in Mark's truck bed when the police searched it in July 1989 at his mother Lori's house. I think, Hanley told Barry in 2001, we actually got some black hairs out of the back of the truck. By now, you have all seen countless photos of Doreen. Here is Kate, Doreen's seventh grade friend, from Westwood's Academy. Seventh grade, I mean, you're developing, but you're not really. But she, she looked much older than she us. She did. She looked very mature. That's why I always thought she was like 14 mm -hmm. or 15. Cause she was just, just so like voluptuous and just grown up looking. Yeah. You know what I mean? I don't know if you could tell from that picture, but she had big, thick hair. Yeah. You know, I mean, just gorgeous. And she always had it up in like a banana clip. Just, yeah. she just looked grown up. Devil's Advocate Me remembers riding around with my little sister in the bed of my own father's truck, back when he worked at Town Fair Tire in Wallingford. Back then, it was nothing. No seat belts, no buckles, not a care in the world. So maybe Doreen had taken a fun ride with her dad. Either way, the police reaction to those hairs is confusing in the least. 
Hanley told Barry they were a dead end because, quote, we had nothing to match it up to. But that's not true. And not just because Donna and Jane, Doreen's mother and grandmother, had already provided DNA. Because Hanley also told Barry they'd seized Doreen's hairbrush in a search of Sharon's parents' house in Danbury, in which Sharon had taken refuge after Mark left her. Fast forward to February 2019, when I asked Lieutenant DeMeo about the hairs. He just smiled. Animal hairs, he said simply. But neither Mark nor Donna had any animals, and the police had been careful to note that Mark Hunter Vincent was not a deerjack and didn't hunt. So what kind of animal are we talking about? For a while, my relationship with all of the PD, not just Michael Colavolpe, continued like this. An email here, a response there. It's one thing to get caught up on trucks and stones and cats and dogs. But when it was time for the cops to face the Jabberwocky, to deal head-on with the jaws that bite and the claws that catch, I got radio silence at best and absolute dismissal at worst. This started early on, when teacher Tom Pannone, who'd had Doreen at Waterbury's Carrington Elementary in his first class ever, called me to say he'd repeatedly caught her touching herself in class. Back in the mid-80s, this wasn't the bright red warning sign we know it to be today. But Pannone mentioned that the police hadn't even given him much of a thought back then, charging him with getting Doreen's records together and delivering them to the station. It was around the time that Pannone had taught Doreen that she was sent to Florida for a couple years to live with her maternal grandparents and began to display an unusual fixation with her body. So Donna and the and her sisters were telling me a little bit about, you know, that Doreen would want to swim at your house, but she would want to swim naked too, right? Right. Right. She did do it. Yeah. She did do it. She did. And, you know, my husband, well, when he was alive, I think he almost, he couldn't believe what he was seeing. You know, he said, you know, get some clothes on. But she, she couldn't, he, he because he was worried about her getting... He knew if she wasn't fully dressed and she had a tan, this is what it was, if she had a tan, he would have known she wasn't dressed. Who, Mark? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's, that's, the, that's what she said to me. If I get a tan, he's going to know that I, I wore a bathing suit. So she said, so this, maybe that's why she took everything off. So she got everything, you know, all tan everywhere. You know, I was the only thing, that was um, the only thing I could think of why you would do it. She said that to you, if I get a tan, he'll know? No, no, she said that to me. Doreen said that to you. Yeah, Doreen said that to me. If I get if I get a sunburn, you know, I get tan. You gonna know, especially like a bathing suit iron. You know, you get a bathing suit iron. Yeah. If you have your bathing suit on, you can, you know, you can tell the difference. So she's not allowed. So that's her, her excuse for going swimming naked then. Yeah, it's like that's her. And I thought, well, I thought that was awfully <clears throat> strange. I says, well, what's wrong with where you're supposed to wear a bathing suit when you go in the pool? And she just, she ignored that. She goes, well, I, I, I got to get it. If I get a tan, I got to get it all over. I go, oh, okay. I, go, oh, I couldn't figure out why. Of course, now I know why, but I couldn't figure it out then. It didn't make any sense to me. Jane also told me a story about Doreen taking it too far physically with a neighborhood boy and him hating her for it. By the time Doreen reached the seventh grade, she was back in Connecticut living with her father 
and appearing before her disappearance in three yearbooks that I made it a point to scour. The first two were from Parkview Christian School from 1987 and, surprisingly, 1988. Even though Mark and Sharon pulled her out of there in October 87 to place her at Hamden's Westwoods Academy. Armed with the two Parkview books and the 1988 Westwoods Annual, I found multiple photos of our girl enjoying time with friends, both her age and much older. Usually, she's beaming. There is one photo, however, where she's caught in an unguarded moment, face frozen in an expression I've scrutinized but cannot pin down. While Doreen does feature in both Parkview class photos, she wasn't there to take that shot with her Westwoods classmates. And the last school photo in which she features is a darkly lit, last-minute edition shoved in among the more conventional photos of her classmates. In an act that felt like yelling into the dark, I began to send unsolicited emails to Doreen's classmates. One woman from Parkview contacted me briefly and then pulled away like she'd touched a hot stove. I've never heard from her again, despite what I am sure are my very annoying pleas. Tommy, a senior to Doreen's sixth grader at Parkview, told me the school was small but close and explained why he'd left, quote, all his advice to Doreen in the 1987 yearbook. It was an inside joke, he told me. I was always giving my classmates some kind of advice. I was and still am a morally conservative person, and I would make jokes with my classmates and their moral choices. Doreen just had a habit of being a little too loud, getting into trouble for being loud in the hallway in breaks, hanging out with the high school kids, and getting in trouble for not being where she was supposed to be. Not all of Tommy's memories of Doreen were negative, but even those were tinged with a certain sadness. Doreen was a very outgoing kid, he wrote, who many in the high school kind of gave attention to, and we enjoyed having around. But now that I am older, I can see she was also very needy. Doreen and other students who had difficult situations had a pretty strong impact on me, and I have been working with children in need for most of my life. I've asked Tommy for more detail, but in the almost two years to the day since he last wrote me, I haven't heard back. So that brings us to Kate, who was also new at Westwoods in the fall of 87, and who gravitated to Doreen like a moth to the flame. Kate's initial email to me almost knocked me over. I have several memories about Doreen, Kate wrote, and things she told several of us at school that always struck me as odd. At the time of her disappearance, I recall telling someone about what she told us. Perhaps an investigator, but I don't remember who. But to my knowledge, none of it was substantiated. Perhaps we can schedule a time to get together to chat over a cup of coffee. I quickly made an appointment to meet Kate at a local Starbucks. A year later, Kate's words rang in my head when I tracked down Heather Parker, who had been a senior at Westwoods that year, after reading what she told Richard Novia. Doreen had a reputation, Heather reported, for making up stories. In the beginning, though, that's not what caught Kate's eye. Kate was shy and a bit of a wallflower, and compared to the other girls making up the typical 7th grade cliques, 
Kate thought Doreen was beautiful. But she always looked so much older. Like she had beautiful hair. She always had it up in this big clip. She always just had perfect like makeup. I mean, she just looked so much older. And she used to tell us she had an agent who took her to New York City all the time for photo shoots. And there was something else about Doreen that was intriguing, mystifying. As a 12-year-old kid, you know, you just see this girl who looks really pretty. She clearly has the attention of boys. She's very popular. She had a very loud voice. Like, she almost had, like, that, that Brooklyn type of voice, that raspy, adult kind of throaty voice. You know what I mean? And it was like she commanded your attention when you were with her. Yeah. And so she just had, like, this, this personality that was just larger than we were. Right. You know, I, I was very timid, and she was definitely a much stronger personality. Yeah, but you hit it off with her. Yeah. you were, right. Well, plus, it was such a small room, she didn't have many people to <laughs> pick from. Were, um, you think the boys were interested? I, you know, I can only guess. I mean, it, it just, that was her style, you know, yeah. but it was also a Christian school, so there was none of that, no hanky-panky going on in school. Yeah, and, yeah. You know, there were, there were strict rules, but, you know, she was always very flirty in the way she interacted, and like I said, always put... I pressed Kate further on this, asking if she thought this was just an act on Doreen's part or something more, something other than bravado. Think about to... Because you said you didn't think that she had ever had sex, or maybe she did. Well, she talked about boys like she had experience, but we didn't know how experienced, or if it was just like doing things with boys. Okay. You know, but she definitely had more knowledge about boys than the rest of us did. Are we talking about, like, talking about body parts, or talking about actual sex, or...? Not to sound graphic, but I feel like I have memories of her uh, knowing what blowjobs were all about. Okay. Um, And, like, we didn't know what they were at that point. Um... Yeah. Like, I just remember her knowing all kinds of stuff that we didn't know. She's talking about boys again, and she always dressed so grown up. And I don't remember if she said she had done it with a boy at that time, but I remember she used to be very graphic about, you know. Sex. Yeah. Yeah. And so we were all, none of us knew for sure if she was just full of garbage, if she was telling us stories, or yeah. if it, but she was always very, like, braggy about that kind of thing. In my redacted copy of Richard Novia's report, there's a span of 15 pages that are simply blank. I know now that those pages comprise Novia's interview of every classmate of Doreen's he could get his hands on. When I tried in vain to push the cops in 2019, 2020, and beyond to listen to what Kate had to say, it was clear that they were already aware of the impression Doreen had made. It's obvious, one member of the PD told me bluntly, that Doreen was much more advanced than her classmates. And for years now, I've tried to make the PD acknowledge that all this so-called advancement means so much more to force it to look the jabberwocky in the eye. And I failed. February 16th, 2021. That day, following almost a year to the day when he testified before FOIA, that he'd be applying for an arrest warrant shortly, marked my last conversation with Mike Colavolpe. After insisting sexual abuse wasn't a key element to prosecuting Doreen's murder, and that the only evidence of that abuse were underwear photos taken of Doreen by her father Mark, Colavolpe suddenly stopped responding. On April 30th, 10 days after Colavolpe made captain, I got sick of waiting. I emailed him from the newly coined justicefordory at gmail.com. 
Good morning, Mike, I wrote. Congratulations on the promotion. I was hoping to catch up on Doreen's case soon. Do you have time this weekend or early next week? Also, I have created a new email address for this case, as you see. Thanks, Jess. Five days later, I still hadn't heard anything, but Mike responded to my follow-up email within eight minutes. Things have been a little busy, he wrote. I'll try to find some time at the end of this week, or beginning of next. I know it probably won't be a quick call. Is it something we can communicate back and forth via email? Let me know. My next email took me a while, because I was stewing. On June 11th, my annoyance was clear. Given the subject matter I wrote, I don't think a call should or need be a quick one. It's been a long time, and the family and I are looking for a discussion on the status of this. I am also considering a FOIA request on your updated investigation, so I can see what leads and work you have abandoned as you work toward your final goal of having an arrest warrant. Two weeks had passed without a response when I checked out the Sticky Beaks Facebook page and saw this invitation, posted by follower Jennifer Horn with the caption, I'm just going to leave this here. Coffee with a cop, it read, and there was a cute little logo with a cup and a cap. The Wallingford Police Department invites you to join us at the Wallingford Garden Market at Doolittle Park from 9 a.m. to 12 noon, June 26, 2021. For coffee and a chance to ask questions, voice concerns, and get to know officers that serve our community. You know I had to go. And I arrived to the park that day so hellbent on giving Cole Volpe a piece of my mind that I almost walked straight into the back of a car driven by an old friend from the small religious elementary school that I had attended. Every day, this case reminds me how small this world is. My God! I'm sorry, Jennifer. It's Jessica. Oh my God! <laughs> Are you okay? Yeah, I'm you so okay? sorry. Are you all oh right? Yeah, oh my God! Hi. Hi how are you? Good. How are you? Good. Good. That was so weird. Once I chatted with Jennifer and made sure to plug the podcast, I headed over to see my friends Danielle and Johnny at their booth. Despite a busy schedule that includes a new baby, a new real estate career for Danielle and the launching of a plant business they call Happily Rooted, those two have been nothing but the staunchest of my supporters. Hey, hey. how are you? Good, how are you? Very good. Hey. I didn't know if you would recognize hey. me oh without my mask. Yes. How are you guys doing? Hey, baby girl. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah, we were. We were just talking about the friends. I can't, I can't help myself. I have to, like... They were at, we were at camping in Pawtrog, like, Connecticut. And yeah. Our friend was like, yeah, he's like, he's like, I just listened to it not too long ago, the whole thing. He's like, wait, what happened in Wallingford? He's like, yeah, exactly. He's like, That's It's crazy town. Now that I think about it, I should have bought a plant, but I was too nervous, too distracted. When I finally found the booth I had been looking for, it was manned by two female officers and one male, all three unfamiliar to me. They didn't know a lot about Doreen, but I was able to get some info about the PD's new leadership and its plans to move to a new headquarters. I was also able to trade some stories about ornery Connecticut wildlife and snag some Wallingford Junior detective stickers for myself. 
I mean, my kids. How are you? Hi, I'm Jessica Fritz and Wire, the woman with the podcast. I don't know if you guys know about the Doreen Vincent podcast. Yes. Okay. So I just came by to say hi because I'm I'm recording. Is that okay? I'm not doing. I'm not here to like. But I just came by to say I started with the podcast again because I'm trying to get it revamped up and get public interest in it. As I um, do you know when Chief Ventura is starting? He July first. Okay. Yeah. He will be. And I'm sorry, I would. I'm Jessica. I'm sorry. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. Okay. Yeah, we're very excited. Do you have any idea what the status of that is right now? I actually don't. Um, what you probably can do is call Lieutenant uh, Ciparelli. Okay. He is the head of the detective division, and he could probably give you more insight with that. That was um, Michael Colavolpe's position. Yes, he is now. He is now the captain. Okay. That's now the captain. So explain to me, because I don't know how the hierarchy works. So we have the chief, the deputy chief, captain, then lieutenants, sergeants, and then patrolmen. So he's now a captain of patrol. So who's becoming deputy chief? Do you know yet? That's in the process. That's in the process. So it may be it may be Calvopia, maybe someone else. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. It's going to depend. That's really cool. Yeah, I was hoping to maybe see him today, because I've been emailing with him. Yeah, he's wonderful. A little bit. Oh, yeah, he's great. Actually, um, when we lived in Wallingford, for um, probably a decade ago, we used to play softball. My husband used to play yes. softball, yeah. and I think Mike was on his team. Yes, he probably so was. he probably was. So, yeah. so yeah. you could either talk with with um, Captain Calvopi, or you could um, get in touch with Lieutenant Ciparelli. Okay, he's the head of the detective division now. Okay, yeah, it's good. I didn't know that Wellingford had female officers. Oh, yes, which is really good. We do. You do. Yes, we do. We have yes. actually just hired another just hired one. Do you really? Okay, yes. and we because just hired another. I know there's been an issue with like hiring enough officers because you guys need. It's yes. a big Town, right? We do. We do actually do. We're a little down now, but I think we'll, we'll build it up again. So hopefully, when we're in the new building, we can add to our top number. When does that um, go into effect? Probably not going to be yeah. two, three years. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Okay. Because my grandmother used to be an executive for 3M. It's a 3M building. Yeah, right? it is. Yeah. So I have memories of like going back there because it's, it's sort of in the middle of. Is it Research Parkway? It, it, kind of. It's it's off. It's like actually behind um, Walmart. I think you know, Okay. Okay. Of, like, I have memories of like watching ducks okay. like mallards like parade by, but I was like little. little. Yeah, there's a turkey that yeah. hangs up up there. Yeah, he causes some problems. <laughs> sometimes. Yeah, we're looking, we're looking forward to it. There's um, I live in Weathersfield and we have a turkey named Kevin that like harasses the. Yeah, he's supposed to be cute, but he's not cute. He's no. kind of a troublemaker. There are uh, there were two toms on, down uh, the south side of town, and they actually cornered me in a uh, dead end. They wouldn't let me get out of my cruise. <laughs> I didn't know that the Toms hung out together. Oh yeah. Well, I'll let you guys. I'll let Thank you guys you so hear. Much. But it's very nice. To yeah, you. I just you know I look into it. You know, it's a very it's since 1988. I know. This little girl was she deserves being it. abused. She really deserves it. Yeah, and she I just, does deserve it. You know, it happened on my 10th birthday. It's like just very kind of yeah, near and dear no, to my heart. So. Are you guys be safe? Thank you. Can I actually grab some of those for my kiddos? How many do you have? Um. Well, I have two little kiddos, and I have one big kiddo, and the big kiddo will be jealous. Okay. She's 18, isn't that bad? We're better and different. I really appreciate you speaking to me, though. That's very Oh, absolutely. No, it's not. Here you are. Thank you so much. That was nice meeting both of you. Bye-bye. Having still not heard from Cole Volpe almost two weeks later, I tried again this past July 7th. As I mentioned, I reminded him, I am strongly considering a follow-up FOIA request and would like to cooperate with you as much as possible to avoid contention. 
Now that new leadership is in place, I think we should discuss a more cooperative approach, with me obviously keeping things confidential as needed. I understand the importance of getting this right, and I think we could help each other finally get answers and justice. I have a lot of information I think you'd be interested in. Please let me know your thoughts. That one, finally, got a response. Good afternoon, Jessica Colavolpe wrote. I do not have anything further to share since our last conversation. And although the leadership may have changed, the facts in this case have not. As we have previously discussed, there are a lot of theories out there on what happened the night Doreen disappeared and who may have had involvement. However, looking at this from the criminal standpoint, we have to base what we know on the facts and determine probable cause. Without direct evidence or a confession, I am not sure what new information you may be able to offer, but we are always willing to listen. Colavolpe was wrong, I thought. Doreen's file wasn't one of those catch-a-killer kits they send you in the mail, or a book featuring Sherlock Holmes or Nancy Drew. We didn't just have a pile or six or eight or ten immutable clues to figure out. These were leads. They needed pursuit, development, investigation. I called my buddy Mike Bouchard, a Bridgeport cop turned cold case novelist, to get his take. And if you go back as far as Doreen's uh, uh, mother, yep, uh, making statements as far as you know, the the abnormal sexual behavior of a lot of the male male people in that family, especially towards the younger children, this and that, I mean, that right there, I mean, there's nothing that should ever be excluded from an investigation, especially if it's going to be a homicide investigation. There shouldn't be anything that's not unturned. So to just blatantly say, I'm not going to investigate this because... Yeah, okay, look, I, I agree. Okay, yes, it is a, a separate statutory crime. I yes. Get that. But we're looking for pieces of a puzzle for a conviction. So to turn anything away doesn't seem correct. Well, again, not only that, but he's... Hold on. <clears throat> not only did he say that he's not going to look at that piece of the puzzle, he said there's no evidence of sexual abuse in the file. Oh, in the file, but well, that's not actually true, though. Of course it's not. Think about all the people that you've had on the podcast that have made uh, statements uh, inferring sexual abuse and all of that stuff. Your files, your, your podcast, as far as this investigation, all of your podcasts should be recorded and be part of that police jacket. Yes. So to say that there's nothing in the files that indicate that is not correct because your your podcasts have had people, like I said, your podcast should be part of that file that are that have made statements, not only directly naming people. That they are person, they have personal knowledge of sexual abuse going on in that family. So to exclude it seems a little abnormal. You know, you know, maybe it's just me because.
because I'm kind of world fashion. You know, I'm old school cop. I, I just do school cop stuff that just, you know, I listen, I understand there's limited resources and money. However, you know, somebody's throwing, somebody's throwing an answer to a homicide in your lap. Mm-hmm. And by you failing to act, you are being negligent because you're not doing your sworn duty to arrest these people. Right. I mean, so how is, not only is a cop, let's forget I'm a cop, how is a, how is a, a, a citizen going to look at that where we have, in, in Connecticut, we have at least three, three homicides mm-hmm. that we know by statements made is, is putting the person, main person of interest right in our lap. Yep. And we're not, we are not actively pursuing that. I mean, that in itself is a crime. Yes. So, and for, like I said, I, I think a lot of the, the issue you're running into is because your podcast has overturned so much information. Uh, it's embarrassing. Yeah. You know, and well, let, let's put our personal feelings aside. I mean, what's more important, you being embarrassed, you protecting a family member, or putting a person behind bar that murdered someone? Right, as, as a police officer, as a detective, right? Right. I mean, that, that, you know, yeah, I may be old school, but, you know, there's no reason not to pursue anything. So maybe I'm not giving Colavolpe enough credit. Sometimes facts are facts, immutable and all but impossible to ignore. But from the beginning, the police and the press have lent a skeptical ear. Back in 1988, after learning that they had only taken Mark's report about Doreen's disappearance and refused her sister Donna's, Debbie demanded a meeting she tells me was informal and brief not the formal recorded interview the cops claim they have with her. Debbie doesn't remember being taped, and if she was, they didn't ask, and she's not listed as a witness anywhere in the redacted file I have been given. In 2001, Debbie spoke to Jason Berry of the Record Journal anonymously, telling him the same blunt story. I think he sexually abused her, she said of Mark and Doreen. Maybe she was pregnant. He did it to me and my younger sister. I'm only two and a half years younger than Donna. That's what makes me think he did it to Doreen. Mark was persistent, Debbie said. He always bothered me. He'd come up to my room with a flashlight. I'd hear him coming. I couldn't sleep. It started. I can't remember the first encounter, but I remember he used to sneak into the bed and touch me on top. All he had on was his underwear, and he was on top of me. I was the one who stopped it. I don't know how far he would have gone. Barry was careful to mention that both Debbie and Carol admitted never pursuing Mark criminally, and that no one in their family ever reported it. They considered kicking Mark out of the house to be enough. Detective David Blythe was clear with Barry about his thoughts, telling the journalist there was no proof to back up the sister's account. But while the details of Carol's abuse, June's, the pond, the changing rooms, remained quiet until she and I spoke one-on-one. Both of Dorian's aunts have been very vocal 
about the childhood sexual abuse they'd suffered at the hands of Mark Vincent. And their stories haven't changed. I remember when Joe first asked me if I wanted to go, to even participate in those initial interviews with Sarah Dimio for season two of Faded Out in January 2019. I almost jumped out of my skin. I arrived to Donna's in full makeup and a black dress, and Joe mic'd me up in the living room. There alongside Doreen's sister Stephanie, Doreen's aunt sat together, just as they had when speaking to Barry anonymously for his article two decades ago. The first voice you'll hear in this recording is Carol's, and the second is Debbie's. How long were Mark and Donna together when Doreen was born? Two years. Three years. years. Okay. Okay. Three years on and off. And so were they, they were dating for a while before the baby was born? Yes. Okay. Yes. What did you think of him when you were younger? Oh, it was not my favorite. No? <laughs> no. No, he was actually a little bit abusive to me and my sister. Okay. Yeah. So how old were you when Doreen was born? Thirteen. Okay. And he was abusive to you even as a young kid like that? Yes, he was. Did Donna know how you felt about him? Well, we told my mother. We, my sister and I went to my mother and talked to her, and then we went to Don, then my mother went to Donna and explained everything that happened. He'd come up at night, and we were sleeping, and he started touches inappropriate. Oh, so he was sexually abusive. Exactly. Okay. Was he living in the house at the time? Yes, he lived downstairs with Donna and the baby. Okay. Which was Doreen. Okay, and she was born in seventy-five. Yes. Okay, and you were a teen. Okay. Mm -hmm. What was the result of that? Did he have to leave the house or? And, well, that was the end of the relationship, except for he used to come and visit her on the weekend. Okay. Doreen. He'd come so, and get her when he felt like it. So he and Donna weren't together anymore? No. And she broke, was that the end of the relationship after she found out what he was doing with you? Mm, did they go back? At one they point, went back and forth for a little while. Every everywhere since Doreen was born, mm -hmm. my parents had made a little apartment, and my parents worked nights when we lived in New Fairfield. Okay, and so myself and my sister used to stay in their bed, and that's when he would come up and do inappropriate touching. And once we moved to Danbury, we were only in New Fairfield for one year. They moved into a trailer. Donna and Mark? Yes. Okay. Somewhere along the way it came out, I told my parents, and uh, they separated. And Mark, being who he was, took me aside and said, if you tell her it's not true, I think we would give me money. I, I, I can't remember mm -hmm. exactly what it was, but it was a little bit older than maybe a little doing my own thing at that time. So, you know, money sounded good. You know, I'm yeah. like 13, 14 maybe. And um, he told me to tell my sister that it wasn't true. They went back together for a very short time. So you did tell her it wasn't true? I did. Okay. She knew I was lying. Yeah. And my sister knows me. Probably a few months after that. So Doreen was probably about, I'm going to say maybe f tops four years old. Okay. Yeah. Okay. They were together probably about three and a half years. Okay. Starting yeah. when she was, say, 13? or so, right? Because she was 16 when the baby was born? Um, yes, she just turned 16. She just turned 16. They pretty okay. much were made to marry. You know, it was, you know, either you get okay. married or 
give the baby up for adoption. They chose to get married. And here I want you to remember the money Mark and Doreen's stepmother Sharon told the cops Doreen had taken with her when she ran away. According to them, she'd made it helping around the house. Seventy to ninety dollars in nineteen eighty eight was a lot for a kid, and Donna said Doreen had been useless at housework. But Mark was always a much stricter parent. For Doreen's own welfare, Sharon told journalist Valerie Roth back in 1991, as Mark was being sentenced on that gun charge. So maybe Doreen did do chores or help with little siblings Paul and Sarah. And maybe she did have money for it, at one point. But a year later, when the police found Doreen's wallet during a search of Sharon's parents, it was empty. Now recall Andrea Bauman. She of the superimposed wings and halo whose father Dennis said she'd stolen money from her little sister's dresser before she ran away. That story ran for years, long after Andrea was dead and gone, and just a face in a rock video. So here's my question. Did Doreen ever really have any money? And if she did, where did it come from? And where did it go? In my last conversation with Cola Volpe all the way back in February, before he stopped responding to me, I tried to force these pieces on him, tried to make him face the very real possibility that, just like her aunt, Doreen was being sexually abused and was getting paid to keep her mouth shut. Maybe this all came to a head, I said, because Doreen didn't want to keep quiet anymore. That day, Colavolpe had already stopped listening. The pages of the file turned as he read. But suddenly he interrupted me. Ah, as we were talking, I just came across something, he said. Looks like Sharon told the cops that she'd always suspected Mark was molesting Doreen. So, you're correct on that. That, Colvolpe said, was my error. I hope you'll join me for another chapter of my unobserved, confounding, and often terrifying adventures in Wonderland. It's not always a fun place to be. In the words of Lewis Carroll, little Alice fell down the hole, bumped her head, and bruised her soul. Walk softly, children. Walk softly, children. Walk softly, children. Find your Cheers.